Welcome to the Sifted Podcast. I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. Amy is away again this week, so I'm joined by Anissa. Hello, I'm so glad I get to do this with you again. Yay, thank you for joining us, Anissa. At Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector, and every week we use the podcast to give a peek inside the Sifted newsroom to discuss the biggest things coming out of European tech, share opinions, and speak to the journalists breaking the stories. Yep, so this week we've got some exciting things that we're going to be discussing, including our normal news roundup, where we're going to be talking about Pollen, which is the elite events company that's going into administration, and it's got a bit of a final dramatic chapter in its life. We'll also be speaking to Freya Patti, a sifted reporter, about a development with Elon Musk. He wants to invest $80 million in a carbon removal startup. And finally, we'll be speaking to our reporter, Tim Smith, about a story he wrote that spans time travel, UFOs, groundbreaking epilepsy treatments, and moonshine made in a lab. That sounds wild. But first, before we get into all of that, what's been happening this week at Sifted, Elena? This week at Sifted has been very busy. Obviously, Amy's not here, and so I've had to hold down the fort. And the last couple of weeks have honestly been kind of slow with news. I don't, you know, people are away on vacation and there's not much news coming out. But then this week, there's been tons and tons of news, which we're going to actually kind of get into. Our first story of the day is we're going to talk about Pollen, the elite events company. And we've spoken about it on the podcast before. The startup's been followed by quite a few problems, including not refunding customers for cancelled events, to not paid its staff. It's not paid its suppliers, and there's been a whole conversation about it going on on Twitter. But there seems to be a development. What's been happening this week in that story, Elena? Yeah, totally. So quickly, just a bit about Pollen. So they're an events company. They organized some cool events like music festivals, really bespoke and like awesome things, two and three day events as well. And obviously the pandemic was super difficult for them. So kind of trouble started around there because obviously when we couldn't have events anymore in person, they had to refund people for those events. And people are still coming to us and talking about the fact that they haven't been refunded for events that were cancelled at that time. And then obviously other things have been difficult for the startup in recent months, like it's a more difficult funding environment, the economy isn't doing as well. And so this week, the company sent an email to the employees that actually confirmed that it was going to restructure after they failed to find a buyer, which is kind of shocking because just a few months ago, they had actually raised 150 million in fresh VC funding. And I mean, they have some really, really impressive VCs like North Zone, Frontline, Molten Ventures, like some huge names in European VC. Do we have any more info about what that email said? The One of the co-founders, the co-founders are brothers, Callum Negus Fancy, said in this email that we were not considered a big enough priority to buy in this climate, even by companies who had tried to buy us for significantly more previously. And he apologized to employees and said, I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to close the deal in which we sold the business in its entirety and kept the whole company together. It's really interesting because of this kind of economic downturn that we're in and the really frosty VC environment that this isn't the only casualty story this week. German neobank Nuri has been running for seven years. We're also hearing that they've shut down. Eleanor, what is the background of Nuri? Who were they as a company? 
Yeah, so Nuri has been around, as you said, for a while, right? Seven years. Um, long enough that they've actually had a name change already. They used to be known as Bitwalla, and they're a digital and crypto bank so that their users can hold both normal money, euros, and also cryptocurrencies at the same time. And what actually went wrong? Why are we at this point where they're shutting down? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, it follows um, a little bit of bumpiness for the company already. Just two months ago, the CEO, Christina Volker-Mayer, announced that the company was letting go of 20% of its workforce and it was trying to focus on profitability. But then, obviously, there were so many things that were just working against the startup. As I said, it also dealt in cryptocurrencies and let its uh, customers hold cryptocurrencies. But you have seen, if, if you haven't been living under a rock, you've seen the fact that cryptocurrencies have had a huge sell-off in recent months. And so when they came forward this week and said that they were going into their shutting down, they said that they've seen significant macroeconomic headwinds and the cooling down of public and private capital markets. And those were some of the reasons that they were shutting down in addition to the various negative developments in crypto markets. So let's talk about one more news stories before we get into some juicy interviews. We had a story this week from Mimi, our Nordics reporter, about the opportunity to invest in what was once Europe's most valuable tech company, Klarna, which doesn't need much introduction. I don't quite understand this, and I'd really love to get into the nitty gritty of this. How do you invest in a company like Klarna before they've even gone public and floated on an exchange of some sort? It's a little bit harder as a retail investor to invest in a company like Klarna before they go public, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. So there are platforms like the one that Mimi wrote about this week called TOX that allow people to get access to the shares in these companies before they go public. And these shares that are sold from original shareholders, such as employees or other investors or even the founder to other people are known as secondaries and the transactions that involve those shares are also known as secondaries. That is such a good explanation. I have never heard secondaries explained so well and a thank you. But where I'm still really stuck is TOX obviously bought these Klarna shares when Klarna was valued super highly. What happens now in this later round where Klarna is at a much lower valuation what does that mean? So obviously, the value of the shares that TOX still owns that they bought previously when Klarna was worth a lot of money are worth a lot less money now. The company wouldn't confirm to Mimi how many shares they owned or how much it was worth. But based on calculations, you know, you can just see that the valuation of Klarna has fallen 85%. So they're basically worth just 15% of what they once were worth, probably, right? But they actually invested. So Klarna raised money at the beginning of July and TOX actually got more shares in that round. And it said that, again, as I explained, when TOX gets some allocation into a round, they go to their investor base and say, hey, who wants to participate in this? Who wants to get a share of this? And actually that was oversubscribed, right? So that meant that everyone that wanted to get some of the allocation to Klarna was not able to. And it was overscribed by almost 500% is what the founder told Mimi. But I think it's kind of really interesting that despite the fact that Klarna's valuation has fallen so much, people still think that it's a really high-performing company and they want to get access to that company and that they're betting that Klarna is going to increase in value in the future. And that's why people want a slice of it. So for our first interview of the day, we are joined by Sifted reporter Freya Patti. 
And we are going to be talking about none other than Elon Musk, who is saying he wants to invest $80 million in a carbon capture startup. Freya, I would really love to understand a little bit of the background of what is going on with Elon and this money that he's trying to invest. Yeah, so Elon has pledged 80 million for to fund a competition. It's run by a non-profit in the US called XPRIZE. And they've awarded 15 startups with a million pounds each. And then they'll all go away and work on their projects. And in 2025, he'll give 80 million to one of them. Is there some kind of space context to this story? Elon's been out here trying to conquer Mars. Is this part of his master plan on getting us all to Mars? Yeah, that was one of the interesting things. I spoke to the chief scientist behind assessing the projects and he said that when they first spoke to Elon, he thought he might be interested in projects that would link carbon removal to space. So things like producing rocket fuel uh, using carbon or projects that might work on a Martian environment. But Elon said explicitly, like, this is not about space. This is not about Mars. This is about protecting Earth. So yeah, for this one, the focus is firmly on Earth. Have there been any European startups that have been chosen for this? Yeah, a few of them got through the first round and got a million pounds each from him. So there's one, a British project working in Oman to sequester carbon within the Omani Mountains in a particular rock that's really good at sucking up carbon. There's a French startup called Net Zero, which pairs with farmers to turn their agricultural waste into biochar, which is a high carbon form of charcoal that can sequester CO2. But these startups are only getting a million pounds. Is that right, Freya? So what happens to this big pot of money that Elon is said to have? What, what, where is that going? What's he doing with it? So in 2025, he'll choose or his team will choose one of these projects to win the big prize. So they've got a few years to prove that they can scale up their solution. That's one of the big challenges at the moment and to prove it's cost effective and also to prove things like they've considered where they'll place the infrastructure and thought about things like local communities living around it. That was something the chief scientist was really big on, considering like the social aspects of carbon capture. So yeah, they've got a few years to get everything ready. And then in 2025, Elon and the team will decide which one's going to get the big pot of money. And speaking more generally, Freya, where are we with carbon capture actually? So the X Prize, the, the, the competition Musk has funded, is hoping to produce solutions that could remove 10 gigatons per year out of the sky, which is about a third of all like energy-related carbon emissions we're currently emitting. So it's a big goal, and the tech we have at the moment is really far from that. So Climeworks is the most developed startup in the sector. They're running a plant in Iceland, and they've said that when it's fully up and running, it should be able to do 36,000 tonnes a year. So we're really far from, from where we want to get to. So 36,000, com- and comparing, comparing that to a gigaton, a gigaton is a billion tonnes. That seems pretty far. Yeah, so we're really far off um, the targets we need to get to, but we're just at the start of a big uptick in for the industry, I think. So recently, a collective of companies, including Stripe and Meta, pledged a billion to support the industry. So I think the funding's coming. It's just about scaling the tech and making sure it's cost effective. At the moment, it's pretty expensive to remove carbon. Uh, so that'll be one of the challenges as well. 
One thing I was really excited about when reading this story was that carbon sequestering was moving away from just some of the standard stories we've been seeing of how we're going to be using trees to capture carbon. And there's been a bit more of a conversation about the ocean. If you know me, I'm absolutely obsessed with anything ocean related. So what does that actually mean for you? Is this something that is seriously being looked at? Are we at the beginning of some new kind of revolution? As you said, a lot of solutions so far are focused on land. Um, and he thinks the oceans are going to be the next the next place the industry goes because it's obviously such a large part of Earth's surface and there's le- less competition for land use or like, we don't need the oceans to produce so much food. So it's less of an issue on the oceans. So people are working on stuff to do with plants within the ocean, algae, and people have also talked about using animals in some way. Thanks so much, Freya, for explaining that all to us. We are looking forward to the development on that story. And finally, we're talking to Tim Smith about a story he wrote for us this week about a futuristic research lab that's come up with some groundbreaking ideas, almost like kind of the OG Google X moonshot factory. But this lab went dramatically bankrupt in the dot-com bust in the early 2000s. But Tim has found that its legend and its legacy still live on in the hills of Barcelona. Tell us more, Tim. What is Star Lab? Star Lab, yeah. So it is still in Barcelona, but let's go back to the start because I think it's the most wonderfully 90s tech story ever. So you basically get three sort of pie-in-the-sky technologists, a serial entrepreneur, Walter de Brouwer, the guy who founded MIT Media Lab, Nicolas Degraponte, and this kind of European VC pioneer, Johan Konings. And they essentially got a ton of money together and found this castle in the outskirts of Brussels in Belgium. And they were like, we're going to get all this money and get all these scientists together in all these far out fields. And we're just going to see what happens. There's going to be no agenda. There's going to be no pressure to make money. And yeah, like I said, it just ended up being the most 90s thing ever. There's this like Discovery Channel special about it where it's just all these kind of like robotic dogs and like, I don't know, like all of these sort of possible visions of the future that we kind of dreamt about in the early days of the noughties. We'll get onto it later. Some of their ideas really did come true and they had a cool legacy. But essentially, yeah, the idea was to bring together all these scientists from different disciplines and just see what happens. So... They called it a Noah's Ark of utopian science innovation. So you've got experts in time travel, quantum physics. A guy that, an astronaut. An astronaut, uh, people who specialise in studying consciousness and free will. So all of these things that never really seemed like they were going to make loads of money. But, you know, in the heady days of the 90s and the early noughties when tech was cool and you could just pour money into it. They got them together and, yeah, just saw what would happen. And it was interesting. Like I spoke to a few people who were there in the 90s and they kind of described, you know, staying up for late nights, making vodka out of ethanol from the lab, wrapping themselves in tinfoil and having fire extinguisher battles. I'm not sure that had anything to do with research, but just this, like, very heady atmosphere of scientific collaboration from all these far-out thinkers who did not have commerce or any kind of market sense in mind just doing their thing and then what happened (laughs) yeah so as you can imagine it wasn't necessarily the best business model so it relied heavily on venture capital and then in the dot-com bubble crash which we all know about they couldn't raise more money so from one day to the next one of them described one day we were eating lobster the next the people the people in suits came to pack up the castle so they 
literally, yeah, from one day to the next, this whole kind of utopian, optimistic science project was snuffed out because there was no way that they could actually fund the science from the science that was being created. And so how does this live on? What is its legacy? Yeah, so I guess I found out about this because I have interviewed in the past the founder of this startup, Neuroelectrics, called Anna Mikez. So her and her husband, Julio Ruffini, were pioneers at the lab. Julio was a neuroscientist. She actually wasn't in the scientific side, but on the commercial side. And when it shut down, she was like, why don't we just buy this and start it ourselves? So they bought the rights to it and essentially shipped the whole thing off to Barcelona. They massively reduced the scale. It went from 130 scientists to six scientists. And rather than studying things like time travel and consciousness, which are perhaps quite hard to monetize, they focused on space and neuroscience. So, yeah, now it lives on in this very sort of romantic hillside location overlooking Barcelona with this huge observatory. And they've essentially taken that concept of doing deep tech future scientific research, but now with a much more established business model and the thing has sustained itself since the early 2000s. So it's kind of cool. And so what is this, like, what are the lessons of Starlab for people trying to found companies today or, you know, as Europe tries to fund this kind of research-based innovation? So I think the best example of how this can really work is this company, Neuroelectrics. So this comes from science that was being done back in Brussels in the early 2000s, late 90s, about how we can read brainwaves, electrical activity. So that research has kind of led to this spin-out company, which involves a, a brain skull cap, which can read your electrical brainwaves and put electrical brainwaves back into your brain to treat pathologies. And this company has been going for more than 10 years. It just raised a Series A to fund phase three clinical trials for epilepsy treatments and it's an incredible company, I think. The clinical research to date shows that this non-invasive treatment can improve symptoms in epilepsy patients who don't respond well to any other kinds of therapies. So super cool science. And it was cool talking to Anna about it because she said in the early days, she was going around sort of door to door, selling the early iterations of this to researchers, just knocking on doors, trying to commercialize it. And what she said is that in Europe, we're very good at turning money into knowledge so investing in science and, you know, getting grants for universities. But what we're very bad at is turning knowledge into money, whereas in the States, they're much better at commercializing their science. Yeah, which is interesting thinking about all of the work and uh, talk now, conversation now around university spinouts and trying to commercialize, better commercialize academic research and really fundamental um, research and innovation. So kind of an interesting lesson about how to do that. Totally. And it's just a different model. It's like saying that we can use private money to fund innovation, but that it has to be commercially viable. So as long as you do this research with kind of sound economics in mind, it can produce results, which then mean those could be pumped back into the research. But you always keep that kind of go to market attitude in mind. And what the way they see it is that this is just like a much higher impact way of doing science because you get it out to the people and you get the results in society much quicker. So I think, yeah, I think universities in Europe have a lot to learn from how we just hardwire our scientists thinking into, can this idea be useful outside of just the lab? Well, I know that my Halloween party this year will be Star Lab themed. Yeah. <laughs> That would be kind of sick. I hope so. 
Also, you trailed the fact that this was about UFOs earlier, so I'll just say that for your Starlab party, you can dress as an alien because one of their alumni, Christopher Altman, who's an astronaut, is now working on a UFO research project, which he thinks is going to be the next big thing. So that was another thing they said, is that this kind of just taught people to think in this very sort of uh, open and pie-in-the-sky way. So who knows? I claim dressing up as an alien. That's going to be my... If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all our coverage on sifted.eu. And please don't forget to take our listener survey. You can get a month of free membership if you take it. It's in the podcast description along with links to all the articles mentioned in this episode. Also, if you want to find out more about very individual stories, you can follow our newsletters. They're again all easy to sign up on the website. I write the Startup Life one alongside my amazing co-writer Miriam Partington, who is our reporter in Berlin. And finally, from the page to the stage, if you want to spend more time with Sifted IRL, we're having our Sifted Summits at the beginning of October and tickets are now live if you go to www.summit.sifted.eu. And let us know what you think of the podcast on Twitter or you can always email hello at sifted.eu. See everyone next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.